Thanks for joining me on the Therapy Explained podcast. This week is all about compassion as I speak with Dr. Georgina Mullen about compassion-focused therapy, otherwise known as CFT. Georgina is a clinical psychologist working at the Irish Centre for Compassion-Focused Therapy in Dublin. We speak about the origins of CFT, its roots in neuroscience and attachment theory, the threat, drive and soothing responses and why these are so important in CFT, the prevalence of critical or shame-based parts of us, why CFT can help us with them, working with ambivalence towards compassion and how CFT can be integrated with other modalities such as trauma-informed yoga. Hope you enjoy. Hi Georgina, thanks for joining me today. Hi James, thanks for having me here today. Today we're going to speak about something that I'm not sure would you consider yourself a specialist in, would that be fair to say, uh, compassion-focused therapy? Um, I would say I definitely have an interest in it, and it's mm. the main model that I use in my therapeutic work. I don't know if I'd say I'm a specialist or <laughs> an expert, but um, I certainly try and learn from those who are, so yeah, it's an interest. Could you start off by giving us your take on what compassion-focused therapy is? Sure, yeah. So... Compassion-focused therapy really is an integrative therapy or framework um, that was developed initially by Paul Gilbert about 30 or 40 years ago. Um, He's a British psychologist or psychologist based in the UK. And he was noticing in his work that a lot of his clients were maybe struggling to use some of the cognitive techniques that he was using. I thought restructuring from CBT. And in particular, it was those clients who had high levels of shame and self-criticism. He noticed that the way they spoke to themselves was quite harsh. Um, While they might try and develop kind of alternative thoughts, they they couldn't feel it, that they continued to believe the negative beliefs and have negative feelings about themselves. So he just found that the therapies were struggling maybe to work. And he became interested in this, and it led him to to notice that it could be really helpful for those people to develop a more compassionate relationship with themselves. And so over the past 30 or 40 years, um, he's built up the CFT model, and there's been quite a bit of research on it now, finding that it's helpful, yes, for people with high levels of shame and self-criticism, but also for, for lots of people with many different difficulties throughout many different walks of life um, and throughout the lifespan. I'm not sure, was he a, a psychologist or a CBD therapist? Um, but from my understanding, that CBT was the main yeah. background that he worked from. As you say, that didn't yeah. seem to be enough for some of these quite rigid thoughts that they had. Yeah, so I think he's a psychologist. And I think he was using a lot of CBT at the time in the 80s. But I think he also had some training in sort of Jungian or psychodynamic approaches as well. And... Um, but yeah, so it just seemed that the cognitive techniques that they were using maybe weren't enough to get at the feeling states that were associated with those negative beliefs. So the feelings of shame and threat, people were getting stuck and he wanted to find other ways to help them. Um, and he kind of became interested in this idea of a caring motivation and how if we can switch our states from a threatened or self-critical, um, shameful place to a more self-caring place, it could actually facilitate um, the therapy and help people be able to use therapies that are kind of already existing and effective, but maybe were blocked for some reason for some people. So he was looking for the key to unlock that side of things for people. Do you know how he came 
how, how he came to that to, to that idea that maybe compassion is the answer for these shame-based responses? Um, that's a good question. I, I'm not exactly sure, but I know that in developing CFD, he drew on a number of different um, pieces of science, I suppose. So using an evolutionary framework, affect neuroscience and attachment theory, he developed this understanding of human nature around how our emotions are regulated, how we regulate our emotions through relationship, and how that caring piece that happens at the beginning of our lives through our primary attachment relationship can be really important in laying the groundwork for our mental health in the future. So a lot of people who experience shame and self-criticism might have had some tricky elements in those early caring relationships, which is why now they may struggle with having a compassionate motivation towards themselves. So I think he, he began to notice it through his work and then he began to look at the science and build this bigger picture and this bigger framework and then the therapy. So he might have considered those fundamentals to how our psyche is developed, um, attachment, and that yes. with frayed attachments, what might have been missing at the time is lack of compassion or empathy or love um, during those crucial times. And it's like, okay, well, maybe there's something to that. Maybe we can develop that at yeah. a later stage. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I wonder if we could define what compassion is in compassion-focused therapy. Sure, sure. So within CFT, they use a definition of compassion um, that I think is drawn from the Buddhist tradition, and it has two parts. So the first part is an awareness of or a sensitivity to suffering, your own or others. And the second part is some sort of motivation or commitment to try to alleviate it or prevent it. So it has two separate pieces when we're trying to develop our compassionate motivation. It's rooted in those Buddhist traditions, which I guess brings me up to a point that we spoke about a little bit earlier, something that I came across during the week and mm. um, that was mm. in reference to a, a talk that the Dalai Lama was giving. I think it was in the 90s and it was to do with uh, or someone brought up the concept of inner critic or self-hatred and uh, the Dalai Lama mm. wasn't aware of it. It was something that was mm. unfamiliar. Um, he, I think he mm. said he didn't realise it was a thing. He was surprised by his own ignorance. And I, I wonder, is that maybe why? Because as maybe as part of that culture, compassion is, or that, that, that approach to compassion, so awareness and mm. um, way to, to manage it, is just built in. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, my first thought is, wow, how lovely that must be <laughs> to not be able to know what self-criticism or, or, or shame is. Um, and yeah, there probably is a big cultural piece. I think, in my experience, shame and self-criticism is really prevalent among people who are struggling with their mental health. And obviously, I work in a compassion-focused therapy-based practice, so people who are having those experiences may be drawn to our therapy, but even when I was training more broadly in other mental health settings, um, I felt like almost everyone I spoke to had experiences of shame and self-criticism and understood what it was. And I think that there's probably layers of reasons why that might be. So one we already kind of touched on, which is our, you know, our early attachment experiences. And if 
our needs for care aren't fully met um, or if we're actively hurt or neglected by our primary caregiver, that can really set us up to be very shame prone, to believe that others will hurt us later in life and to be very self-critical. So that's one piece of it. But then if you kind of step back and you say, well, why are those parents maybe struggling or primary caregivers struggling to meet the needs, the caring needs of their children? We might say, well, have, were their caring needs met? Um, or, you know, were their traumas not um, given space and cared for in the way they might have needed to be? And that leads us to that idea of intergener intergenerational trauma and looking at kind of our ancestry and certainly in Ireland, um, we have a long history of trauma. Um, we were colonized as a nation, um, and then more recently, there is a huge amount of abuse, um, systematic abuse within the church. Um, so there's a lot of trauma in our nation and a lot of pain. And if people aren't appropriately cared for and looked after in that, then it's going to be very difficult for them in turn to care and look after the next generation. So I think there's probably many reasons why we might be in a culture that where there is a lot of shame and self-criticism and also kind of the, you know, we live in a capitalist society where there's a great um, emphasis put on productivity and the importance of work and achievement. So some people's self-criticism, it can have different flavors. So for some people, it's more around that like sort of self-hatred or not believing that they deserve love. So that might be more around the areas of abuse and neglect. And for some people, their self-critic is very around work and needing to work to achieve, to feel valued. Um, and that's definitely a cultural um, idea, I think, that's out there through the way that we school and teach children and how productivity is valued in our culture and many Western cultures. It's a really interesting point that you make, um, Georgina, and uh, also the, the different ways that it can manifest from a CBT perspective or an EMDR perspective. You might look at kind of various negative core beliefs or negative cognitions that we have. And, you know, there's different categories that can fall into one being I'm defective and we can feel we're defective in different ways. So either that we're unlovable or that we're a failure and then that can manifest in uh, different ways. It's my understanding that when it comes to CFT, that the, the three circle models are fundamental to it. I wonder if we could explore that a little bit. Sure, yeah. So the three circle model is one part of um, a group of, I suppose, information or psychoeducation that CFT aims to share with people who are learning about CFT. Um, and it's basically a heuristic model to help us understand our emotions and how our emotions work. And so um, there's a couple of other pieces of information that that they try to share in CFT. So I might talk to them in a moment, but I'll talk a little first about the three circle model. So I think it's based a lot on the work of um, Yak Panksep, I think is his name, and the work that he did in effective neuroscience. So from that, um, that work, Paul Gilbert uh, described these three circles, so three emotion systems um, or three ways of grouping the emotions that we tend to have. And so the first one is the threat system. And this is a very old um, system that we have in our body to help us look out for threats and to help us protect ourselves from danger or threats. 
So generally, when you're describing this to clients, they recognize that system straight away. They say, yes, I'm often in my threat system. My uh, alarm system is going all the time. I feel anxious, I feel stressed, or angry, ashamed, disgusted. These emotions that are telling us that maybe there's something not right in our environment or we're not safe for some reason. And we often know what that is like in our body, in our minds. We might have racing thoughts. We might notice that we're kind of blabbering or not able to speak at all. You might feel um, the heart racing. People know this system quite well. Um, and it tends to work on a better safe than sorry policy. So even if something is not dangerous in our environment, it might easily trigger threat. Um, so that tends to be the most easily triggered system for humans. So we have this threat bias where we'll remember threatening things more easily and that's for evolved reasons to keep us alive. But also then if you have a lot of threatening experiences in your life, as you'll know, um, your threat system can get turned up or become more sensitive. So often when you're working with someone from a CFT perspective, just recognizing that this threat system is there and naming it can be really helpful because it can feel really scary for people to be constantly in that state of threat. Would uh, consider it consider it as our fight or flight response? I'm not sure. Would that be yeah. a fair way of kind of uh, conceptualizing? Absolutely. It? That's it exactly. Yes, it's our fight or flight response. So we can be in threat in quite an activated state where we're trying to maybe run away or fight. Um, but we can also be in threat in a very immobilized state where we shut down and go into that freeze response. So, yeah, it's fight or flight. Yeah. So the next system then is our drive system. And that is more about trying to achieve uh, resources or seeking resources to help us um, continue to be alive, but to, you know, to build and to create cities, hospitals, things that help us keep going in life. Um, and that can also be quite an activating system, um, but it, it can feel kind of similar to threat, but a little bit different. So it's a bit more excitement or that sense of buzz of going to achieve something. So seeking out food, um, seeking out anything kind of pleasurable like that. A lot of addictions might be more within this drive system, that idea of wanting more and that buzz about feeling like you might get more. But drive can be not just things like food that we take into our body or alcohol, but it could also be trying to achieve like status, for example. So something that we think has value to help us survive in society, we might seek it through drive. So working or, or other kind of status symbol that we might look for. Um, so that's our drive system. And often when you describe that to clients, they recognize that quite well too. And sometimes they say, but I don't actually, I don't actually have much motivation or I can't actually achieve anything. But often if you break it down, you'll see that there is still a bit of that drive system happening, even if they're predominantly in the threat system. Yeah, hence why they might be coming yeah. to ther come in to you for therapy you know it's a little instance exactly where it off. yeah yeah exactly so it's almost exactly. like one is one is the break and one is the um uh the what's the opposite to break your accelerator accelerator that's right yeah. one is the break one is the accelerator it can be yeah um yes yeah and often what you'll see is that people will get caught in a pattern of threat drives 
So they might be experiencing high levels of threat. So for example, shame or self-criticism, you might be thinking I'm really bad and um, there's, there's nothing good about me. And But if I do something, then I might feel better about myself. If I work really hard, then you know maybe I can feel better about myself if I finish my to-do list, if I lose weight, if I buy a new outfit. So people can try and get out of threat by going into drive, which can work and can be helpful sometimes. But what can happen is that people get stuck just in a threat drive kind of loop or pattern and their drive system can kind of burn out and they can become quite depressed. Um, or they just find that their system is never resting because both are quite energy intensive, both threat and drive. Um, so it can be quite exhausting to live your life that is way. Is that where the drive would almost become like a compensatory drive to get away from the yeah. threat? And, but then as exactly. soon as you have it, then... Yeah, you're back to square one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So striving to get away from feeling bad about yourself, essentially, yeah. So there are two of the three, and then what, which is the third, uh, Georgina? Yeah. So the third system is the soothing or um, kind of affiliative soothing system or connection system. There's a couple of different names that sometimes are used for it. Um, and this system is about slowing down often um, it's about helping your body move into a more rest and digest state it tends to be a much calmer state whereas the other two are very much about trying to get away from threat or trying to seek something wanting something searching for something generally when we're in our soothing system we're not wanting we're just being um, so it tends to be a much more relaxed state in that sense and our mind might be a little bit clearer our body might feel a little bit calmer often it's relationships and it can help us get into this system and that's why they call it kind of the affiliative soothing system um, but I think that people uh, people can also get into it on them uh, in their own on their own because of their relationship with themselves so you know we have relationships with others but we have relationships with ourselves so we could create that system on our own. And I think also um, it's useful to think about connection to animals and to place and to nature. I think that people can also activate this soothing system through those ways. Um, and it's really important because it gives our body a chance to rest. There's a lot of healing happening there and allows us to create this sense of safeness. And why that can be so important is that if you're experiencing a huge amount of threat in your life and you're going to drive to try and get out of it, and as we talked about, you know, you might start to burn out, that kind of pattern. If you can go over to soothing or create a sense of safeness, that can really downregulate the threat and give you a break from all of that energy that is needed to be constantly in threat or be constantly in drive. So it's like a form of self-regulation. Mm -hmm maybe even a form of co-regulation yeah. between different parts of yourself. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess that um, that the importance of relationships being maybe a big part of polyvagal theory and how we can mm -hmm. help co-regulate, but more of an inward way. Exactly, yeah. So if you're thinking polyvagal theory, that would be the kind of ventral vagus nerve, um, that place of engagement, of connection, feeling safe enough to to be present with others when we have an idea of these three systems where, what do we do from there yeah so it's a useful framework for understanding our emotions because i suppose when you're 
in an emotion, it can feel very overwhelming. But if you can step back and put a framework on it, put words on it, recognize where you are, it's the first step to being able to create change is awareness. Um, so it's useful for that reason. But it also often provides a map for people if they're noticing that in their life they're experiencing a lot of threat, a lot of drive, and not a lot of soothing. Or if they don't even really know what soothing is or they feel like I, I don't have that in my life, then it can provide a map to say, well, maybe that would be a useful thing to work on building um, to see how it changes your life and to see reduce your experiences of um, mental health difficulties because often mental health difficulties are huge amounts of threat or huge amounts of threat drive without a lot of soothe. So you're trying to get a, a, a balance? Maybe a balance, but, but maybe not. Um, maybe it's a bit more flexibility. So sometimes you do have to be in threat a lot. Like you can't turn off the threat system. If threatening things are happening in your life, you might be there. And it's not always achievable to have a balance. But I think ha having the flexibility of recognizing, oh, I'm in threat and it's not so helpful for me to be here anywhere, anymore. I wonder if I could try and move towards a more soothing system. Um, I think having that um, power uh, and that choice is quite helpful. But they might not always be even. So being able to self-regulate at those times, yeah. And I'm wondering then, do we move on to how do we self-regulate or do we go back to, you mentioned there's a few other pieces of information related to the model. Yeah. Maybe I'll share the other pieces of information yeah. first and then we can... Yeah. Yeah, okay, super. Sure. So um, the, the other part that they talk about is the idea of the tricky brain, the new brain, old brain, um, which is the triumph brain theory that you're probably familiar with. Just that idea that the way our older part of our brain and our newer part of our brain interact can be a bit tricky and can lead us to get caught in loops. So our fight or flight system might get turned on and then the way we think about it can keep our fight or flight system turned on which can lead to how we think about it and so forth. And why we talk about that is just to help people recognize that it's not their fault if they are getting stuck in loops or threat loops. Often when people come to therapy and CFT, they're blaming themselves for their difficult experiences. So they're blaming themselves for whatever mental health difficulties they might be experiencing or whatever ways of coping they're using. So recognizing that it's not your fault this is how our brain has evolved over many years can be a really helpful part of just de-shaming and letting people know that you know it's not their fault um, and then alongside that we also talk about this idea that we just find ourselves here so you know you don't choose where you're born or what family you're born to what culture you're born in what experiences really you have in school if you go to school or throughout your life and um, Essentially, we just find ourselves here in whatever mess or pickle we might be in. Um, and so it's not our fault that we might be there. But the wonderful thing about the therapy, I think, is that it says it might not be your fault, but if you want to, you can take responsibility to try and change it or there are ways to change it. So just like the way our new brain and our old brain interact can be tricky, it also can be helpful if we know how to harness it. I really like that explanation, Georgine, and I guess it might be in line with, I'm not sure if you hear of trauma-informed approach. It probably fits quite well with that because it's really the same kind of thing. Um, looks at how our nervous system is shaped over time and that uh, it can be, 
yeah, it's like a, how we make sense of the world is shaped by those early experiences. Our parents or those primary caregivers are a template for that. And that, uh, yeah, it's, it's really understandable. You can really help make someone make sense of why they're feeling like, like how they're feeling, that they're not crazy or they're not evil or a bad person. You can just help them make links there. Um, it's not their fault. And I think uh, a way that I like it that comes from internal family systems, which is something I mention every single episode in one way or another. Okay, um, <laughs> brilliant. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's all about trying to stay safe, that those things that we're doing are ways of trying to keep us safe. Although on the surface, it might not always be so clear like that. If you dig down a bit, you can make sense. Okay, I was just trying to stay safe there, which can, I guess, maybe opens the door to being more compassionate towards ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. We are often seeking that sense of safeness in the world. And and like the world isn't always that safe. Um, really difficult things happen to people all the time. And there's kind of no way we can avoid that. Um, so I think that's also where compassion can be helpful um, because it helps us recognize that, you know, not only are our brains tricky and we don't, we just find ourselves here, but also like difficult things are probably going to happen. Um, and so it's really useful to be able to bring compassionate motivation, try to help you feel safe despite all of that. Um, yeah, I think in reality, if you want to have a meaningful life, you have to lean into difficulty. So the more you yeah. lean into difficulty, maybe the more useful it is to be able to be compassionate towards yourself or self-regulate in the face of hardship yeah yeah and actually that makes me think a little bit about what we spoke about earlier about the definition of compassion I think I shared the two parts but um the other piece around that is that sometimes we think of compassion as kind of weak or fluffy or like being nice to ourselves and actually it's a bit more than that and um, so the first part of the definition of compassion being that we approach our suffering that often requires a lot of courage and can often be really difficult um, so yeah it can be really hard to lean into suffering and often when people come to therapy they've spent they've gotten really good at avoiding it because it's just so overwhelming their pain um, so that can be really hard when people do start therapy is can you build up the courage and the strength to go towards the pain that you've worked so hard to try and keep away from um so yeah leaning into it is important but not always easy that's a great point that you make and um, going back to the idea of internal family systems those parts of us those memories they're called exiles and they're called exiles because they're so distressing we kind of push them away and you can feel it as soon as as soon as you maybe funnel down or bring that up it's yeah it's not a nice place to go so you have to do that like any kind of time you face your fear it has to be voluntarily and yes it comes with courage mm. absolutely yeah yeah um and so if we have an idea of you know, how we get stuck in that thinking about the tricky brain the trion brain so our yeah. reptilian brain versus our mammalian versus our human um brain um and we have an idea of those three concepts um what mm -hmm. do we do with that uh, i'm not sure is at least one goal trying to um improve compassion towards herself yeah exactly so if we take all of this understanding and recognize that it might be helpful to develop our capacity to care for ourselves and to reduce our self-criticism our shame then what someone can do is begin that journey of trying to become more self-compassionate so taking that definition of approaching the distress and then trying to do something to alleviate it or prevent it 
um, that can kind of be a guide on the journey. And then if you're doing it within a therapeutic relationship, the therapist can also be sort of the guide and the therapeutic relationship can be a place to practice receiving some compassion. So the therapist will try to be compassionate to the person. Um, they talk about the flows of compassion in CSD. So that idea that when trying to develop compassion, you might be developing compassion to yourself from yourself, the so self-compassion. But you'll also be working on being compassionate towards others and receiving compassion from others. Um, so once people realize that it, or are open to the idea that it might be helpful, um, they might begin to try and develop that. And they do that through different practices generally in CFT. Be, practices behaviors, so breathing exercises, imagery exercises, certain behaviors or exercise or other like written exercises. But often what the work becomes then is is when people try and develop that compassion or an act of compassionate motivation, they'll notice fears, blocks and resistances coming up that maybe stop them from being able to do that. And then the work is often around the fears, blocks and resistances. I guess I have two questions for that. What are those fears, blocks, resistances? What might be the function of them? And how do you work around them or work with them? Yes, so there can be a range of different fears, blocks, or resistances that come up for people when they begin to try to be self-compassionate. Um, and I guess one of the things that can happen is when we open, it can really open up our attachment system um, and so any history of pain or anger or sadness that's there, any experiences that's stored in that attachment system will start to come up. So when people begin to be self-compassionate or receive compassion, it can be very painful actually. It can be very threatening. It can feel very unsafe. So they might have learned that care comes with pain um, or there might be a lot of unmet needs that get woken up. Um, so it can just be really scary actually and so those are the kind of the fears and then alongside that there can be negative beliefs about compassion that it's weak that it's um, it's going to stop you from achieving in life um, or there might just be a sense of not knowing actually what compassion is or the definition of compassion um, or not having support to be able to access it so there's lots of reasons why people may find it difficult to develop their compassionate mindsets, yeah. Yeah. And then how do you work with those parts when the, that those parts yeah. come up? Yeah. So I guess recognizing and becoming aware of what they are and maybe why they're there and a little bit of compassionate inquiry about why they might be there. And that might lead you to different places. So it might simply be a case of psychoeducation where it's a, a, maybe a misunderstanding. Um, it might be looking at your, the culture that you're in and reappraising how you want to be in the world. Um, but often it's about going to the, the trauma, the pain that's there um, and maybe doing some grief work and really recognizing what the person missed or lost or the hurt that they experienced um, and, and working through some of that so that they can begin to be self-compassionate. But often they talk about just trying to work through the blocks or going around the blocks or going over the blocks. But, you know, the blocks are there. People don't feel it or it doesn't feel right. But we keep doing the practices anyway. Um, and with time, what tends to happen is that the emotion will follow. Sometimes the practice comes first and then the feelings follow later on. Like an exercise that you'd practice repeatedly. 
It can be, yes. If your intention is there for it to be compassionate, sometimes it's okay if you don't believe it, if you don't feel it, if it doesn't feel quite right when you're doing the exercise. If you keep practicing and the intention is there, then that time, uh, with time, hopefully that will start to shift and that block will start to dissolve um, alongside maybe any other work you're doing to understand the block. Is the language of parts used much in uh, CFT? You know, it's the type of language that I really like using in my own practice. Uh, I think it's just a, such a nice way of helping us understand how our, how we think and why we can have conflicting thoughts about things. I'm just wondering how much of it is as part of the CFT model. Yeah, yeah. So they do have that idea in CFT, and they call it multiple selves. So this idea that we've got different versions of ourselves. Um, often they'll name them kind of emotional self. So they'll say angry self, sad self, anxious self, and then maybe compassionate self. Um, but I think you can also change it up depending on what works for the client. So I've had clients who it didn't quite work to call it an emotion like that, so they might give it another sort of name, another version, so a bit more like the parts in schema therapy or, or internal family system therapy, you know, and work with them that way. But within CFT, generally, it's considered multiple selves and called an emotion self. And they do do work around chair work. Um, so getting people to really embody each version of themselves and getting a dialogue going between the different selves and noticing that interaction, how they interact with each other and looking at the function of each part. And then usually the exercise ends with going into the compassionate self and having the compassionate self look at the whole situation and maybe talk to the different versions of the self. So they use this analogy that all the different versions of the self will be in the car or on the bus. And often when we come to therapy, there might be you know a threatened part or an anxious part that's driving the bus. But through therapy, we try and give the compassionate self the, the wheel so that they can lead the person. It sounds so much like internal family systems, what you're describing there. So for mm. those listeners who might know what I'm talking about, um, uh, and I only know what I'm talking about to a degree because I'm not trained in it. I'm actually starting mm. my training in it this summer. Oh, so, cool. Uh, um, Great. Uh, but in internal family systems, uh, the self, which I think is also an idea in Buddhism, the concept of the self. Yes is you're mm-hmm. trying to be self-led and you can embody self or you know when you're in self when you're embodying the seven mm-hmm. C's of self, courage, compassion, courageous, um, creativity. Um, and so it, mm-hmm. sounds, it sounds like that, that when you might be blended with a part, so it's like a traumatized part. So they're taking the wheel like the anxious part and you try to be self-led and the, there's something curative about the self where the, where the self can help those scared or angry or shame parts to become unburdened, to not to see things differently, let go of what they've held on to. So it seems to be a, a fair overlap there. Yeah, and I love when there are those great overlaps between different types of therapies because I feel like it's like, okay, yes, we're, we're onto something here. If we're all coming at it from a different angle and seeing the same sort of thing, um, I think that gives, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think there is a bit of overlap there. Uh, well, we're going off on tangents on different types of therapies. Uh, yeah. You also are trained in uh, EMDR and uh, trauma-sensitive yoga. Uh, I'd love to hear how CFT fits in amongst these. Yeah, so I think it fits really well. And um, because it's an integrative approach or framework, you're able to draw in lots of other existing therapies that are useful. 
but in particular, um, I think there's a lot of people interested in the body in CFT and interested in how we can bring the body more into therapy. Um, because a big part of CFT is developing a compassionate mindset. It's And within that, um, it's learning, I suppose, to feel safe or creating experiences where we can begin to feel safe in our body. So often when people have a lot of mental health difficulties, they don't feel safe in their body for some reason. Um, and so CFT is interested in how we use the body to do that. So in CFT, there's a lot of breathing exercises and imagery exercises where they do that. But there's also different people within CFT who are looking more directly at things like yoga or there's also martial arts and psychodrama. There's different kind of approaches to bringing the body more into the work. Um, so there are quite a few people already doing that work. And then I got interested in yoga through my own practice um, and then became really interested in learning how it could be helpful for people who've experienced trauma. Um, so trauma-sensitive yoga really tries to help people have an opportunity to feel the sensations in their body um, and reconnect to the sensations in their body. And um, often if you've experienced trauma, you've learned to disconnect from your body because it's so painful and overwhelming. So it tries to help allow that connection happen again, but also um, it uh, tries to offer people the opportunity to begin to have choice and autonomy in moving their body or doing something with their body. So it's, I think, a really helpful approach. And I think it can be really helpful alongside um, therapy or integrated into talk therapy. And, and there are quite a few people who are doing that, people like within the CFT community. And I think as you know, the body keeps the score being a famous book that talks about the body and it's, it's trauma and that places a large emphasis. Well, Bessel van der Kolk places a large emphasis on the use of yoga. I think they use a lot of yoga in their own um, services. It. Yeah. So that's I, the trauma sensitive yoga that they developed mm. and then they've been kind of rolling it out as, as training. Yeah. Mm. And I guess it might relate to, you know, sometimes when, someone when that part of them is activated maybe the part of them that was threatened as a child or someone was attacked it's like the yeah. body well from a somatic experiencing perspective so peter levine might say that 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 energy of that trauma is stored mm. in the body and that yeah I, I guess that's where maybe that movement comes in so when you can embody that feeling yeah but then yeah. get to move it's like a, a mismatch between how you felt at the time and how you're feeling now and maybe some form mm -hmm. of release yeah that can definitely happen um and then and then also i think they emphasize the the importance of being able to choose what you do with your body so one of the things in trauma sensitive yoga is they're quite careful about language so they wouldn't tell someone what to do like they wouldn't say lift your arm now they'd say you know if you'd like to you might explore what it would be like to lift your arm and so it's really that invitational language of just letting people have the power because as in trauma you're disempowered someone else or something else has taken over and making you do something or making something happen so it's also trying to allow people the opportunity to take that power back um within their body mm. 
a way of processing, yeah. I guess. Yeah. 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 And can EMDR, I guess EMDR is so flexible and I can imagine it being able to be integrated into CFT. How might yeah. it be so? Yeah. So I think you can, um, you can kind of thread CFT or developing compassionate mindset and the different practices that we use to develop self-compassion uh, into the different phases of the EMDR. So the more sort of... Um, you know, the positive belief that you might be trying to help someone install through the work, you might look more at a kind of compassionate wisdom piece and some of the resourcing that you do, sort of the safe place and things like that. You could, uh, you could, I think you can use sort of compassion practices more specifically. So there's um, often the idea of the perfect nurturer or the compassionate other, so some being who can come and help you and look after you. And so that as a resource can be really helpful when people have high levels of shame and self-criticism. So that might be a resource that you use when you're doing that kind of EMDR work. Mm, that makes a lot of sense and very important for complex developmental trauma where exactly access to those kind of feelings or thoughts might be so yeah. limited. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, you'd use this kind of compassion focused stuff if you were doing cognitive interweave and um, use that to maybe guide the work a little bit. We've mainly focused on how compassion CFT helps with maybe like a strong sense of shame or inner critic. Is there anything else that it helps with? Is that the main thing that it's most helpful for, or would you use it with other kind of presentation symptoms? So it's been applied now over from people who've experienced many different types of um, challenges. So it's been applied for people who are experiencing um, eating, eating difficulties, uh, psychosis, um, sort of general anxiety and depression, but also trauma, um, people who might have diagnoses of personality disorder, chronic pain, um, those with... Uh, diagnosis of learning disability and um, so really across a wide wide spectrum and I guess the transdiagnostic processes are these experiences of shame and self-criticism but I don't know about you but in my experience and um, I haven't really met any clients yet who don't have experiences of shame and self-criticism and um, I don't know what's your experience about no, yeah, yeah. No, I agree it's it's endemic it's uh so yeah. common um, the Dalai Lama would be shocked if he was to work as a therapist in, in Ireland or in the West. Yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah. and it just seems to, if not be a core part, at least a part of mm. so many people's problems in life. And even, even people who aren't experiencing a lot of mental health difficulties. And, um, you know, when I talk to my friends, um, I'll often hear self-criticism or shame. So, I think that's another area where it's been helpful. It's just for the general population to increase well-being. They do they run like compassionate mind trainings, and so I think it really can be helpful for everyone. And and when you look at the science um, behind it, it, it makes a lot of sense why it, it can be helpful in just understanding our evolved functions and and helping and promote our well-being through through developing compassion. So I think I think it can actually be helpful for a lot of people. 
even if they're not struggling with very high levels of shame and tough criticism. For those who wanted to learn a little bit more about CFT, any resources you might yeah. point them in the direction of? So the CFT um, community are wonderful and have so many resources online. So if you just do a search, you'll find lots of things like there's videos on YouTube and um, there's lots of wonderful books out there. Paul Gilbert's books are great, but so are there's so many people who are pushing CFT forward. They're all very good. Um, there's a self-compassion app that's recently been released, I think, by Chris Irons and Elaine Beaumont. And so I haven't actually used it myself, but it's meant to be quite good. So that could be a, quite an accessible way for people to engage with the material if they didn't want to go to a therapist. Um, I'm working at the Irish Centre for Compassion-Focused Therapy with Katie Baird, who set it up, and she is involved in the Compassionate Mind Foundation, the Irish um, part of it. And so we have a number of different therapists working at the centre. Um, and then there's some other places in Ireland. There's the Evidence-Based Therapy Centre over in Galway. They offer compassion-focused therapy. And if people are looking for an individual therapist, I actually think that there's a website called cfttherapist.com where there's a list of CFT therapists, if, if that's something that people are looking for. Um, and then... That, that there's the Compassionate Mind Foundation, which has lots of stuff there for both people who are looking to engage with the therapy and people who are looking to learn about or provide the therapy. And there's lots of peer support groups. Um, and then the other place is just St. Patrick's Mental Health Services, where I first learned about compassion focused therapy when I was an assistant psychologist there. They run lots of wonderful groups and um, compassion based interventions. So there's lots going on and I think there's more developing in the in the general health service in the HSE. I don't know of anything specifically but I think it is beginning to spread and, and more and more people are offering compassion based Great. Well thanks that that's uh, there's plenty out there for anyone that wanting to access more. On that point uh, Georgina that's all we have time for today but uh, thank you again for your time. That was uh, really, really helpful. I really enjoyed that. It was so lovely to speak with you today, James, and thank you so much for, for having me here.